we are in something unique for a couple of weeks where we have an opportunity to, to rally around and circle around why we are a generous church. It's a stated value of ours, uh, but sometimes it can be just kind of one of those things that rolls around in our mind and be like, oh yeah, we're, we're generous because we give some money to the church or because we're Christians and all Christians are generous, right? And this is a moment for us to kind of rally together around that value and, and unpack a little bit about why we are generous people. And particularly uh, this year, we're focusing on how our generosity reaches and touches other people around the world. And so if you would turn to 1 Timothy with me, we're going to start there this evening, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, And what I want to do is, uh, just as a helpful roadmap for you guys, is I want to start by framing our next three or four weeks or so, uh, and then we'll dive into uh, what we're talking about tonight. Um, but really what we get to tee off here is, is honestly one of my favorite times as a church. Uh, it is something that I believe is not only really unique, kind of in the contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian uh, worldview, but I honestly think it's, it's a unique thing for us as a church to really embrace as best we can this identity and culture of being generous people. Uh, and so we get to kind of focus our time and attention on generosity, what the Bible has to say about generosity. Uh, it's a value for us, and, and God has been really generous to us. And so where this value comes from is the recognition of the truth of the gospel, that God has been crazy generous with you and I. And because as he saves us, he makes us more like himself, we begin to take on his character traits and qualities and his heart and his worldview And so as he is a generous God, as he's making us more like himself, we start to become generous people. He is eternally generous, and we revel in the generous nature of the gospel every time we gather together here on a Sunday or when we scatter out into our anthem communities or when we're enjoying a coffee or a beer. And we're just like, I I, I don't know if you guys ever had those moments where you're like, I had this moment with Sherry, I think it was yesterday, where I was like sitting on my couch, and this is going to sound like we live in a really bougie house, we don't, but I was sitting in, on my couch, and I was looking out the window, I'm like, we have a little sliver, I can see the water from my couch in my living room, and I like opened the window, and we caught some like, you can smell the salt in the air, I'm like, I live in Ventura, this is like the greatest city in the world, and it just, I just had one of those moments, we were sitting together, we we're like, this is incredible, like, and I was thinking, man, This is an epic place to live. I'm so grateful that God has put us here. I'm so thankful that, honestly, you guys are in our life. I've talked a couple of times about just how loved and cared for we feel uh, by you guys, especially as we've been kind of reeling from having our third kid and just honestly enjoying the fruit of community. And and there's all these things that just made me really grateful for how God has blessed us, how he has provided for us, uh, and what he's doing in us as a church. And, And honestly, the root of that is an incredibly generous gospel, that we worship a father who likes to give good gifts to his kids. We don't worship a stingy demigod who is like looking to mess with our lives in this Machiavellian way, but we worship and we're saved by a God who loves us and wants the best for us, who gives himself for us, who wants to provide well for us, And honestly, who has the best definition of what good for us is. We don't always have the best definition of what good for us is. But he does, and he's always making a way for that good. And it's in that context that we even talk about generosity, just the reality that we have been shown such love, such compassion, such grace and mercy. And we sit here kind of just in awe of that. 
God has done incredible things for us, and he's shaping us to be like himself. And something changes us when we think about things like the truth of what Paul writes. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says the love of Christ controls us. Christ has died for all. He died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for the sake of the one who died for them. Like that, that is a generous gospel at its root. And we are changed and transformed to not live like selfish people living for ourselves, but we live for someone and something very different. And so this is why it's a value for us. This is why it's important for us. This is why we, we take time to remind ourselves that this is important to us. But like a friend of ours says, uh, if your vision and values don't first become a regular habit, they will never become a reality. And we found that to be very true, especially with something that is very counter what the world tells us we should be and do and think. That it's one thing to have it on a piece of paper or on a website somewhere, but if we're not actually making it a habit in our life, it'll never become a reality. And so when we talk about being generous people, if it's not a habit, if it's not a reality, we're just being hypocrites. And the world doesn't need more hypocrites to look at, especially more hypocritical Christians, right? So that's why we as a church take time to practice this habit and practice this reality. So we do certain things that are hardwired into our DNA, not only as having a value, but 10% of everything that comes in on a regular basis, we invest back out. We tithe as a church. And so we operate intentionally on less than what we bring in so that we can sow into ourselves this habit of generosity, And to take it a step further, as we were considering eight, nine years ago, how to best celebrate our anniversary as a church, we thought, well, we'll definitely have to get a sheet cake, because if you know Matt Larson, he loves himself a good sheet cake. But how else can we celebrate our our anniversary, all that God is doing? And we're like, man, let's see how much money we can give away. And this was another way that we can sow into ourselves this habit and reality of being a generous people. And last year, we gave away something like $130,000, which is insane. It's absolutely insane. And we're definitely a part of two other churches. Anthem is not just this church in this room tonight, but that is still a very large number to have go out our walls into our different initiatives and, and organizations that we are partnered with. And one of the things, guys, I can just tell you, like anecdotally from our experience, that as we lean into generosity further and further as a church, we have never once missed the provision of God. We've never like missed a paycheck. We've never missed a bill. We've never missed a commitment that we've had. And as we've aggressively called you guys to give more and more in a way that affects people outside our walls, God continues to provide for us here as a church. And this is this ongoing testimony about how God has been faithful to us as we're faithful to him in this generosity story. So we come back and we rally around generosity every single year because we want it to be a regular habit. We want it to be our living reality. So we make it not only a habit to teach on generosity, but to actually exercise it every single year. And it's one of these things that not only, I think, separates us from people who would claim it and be a hypocrite, but it separates us from from the world. There's a noticeable difference in how we live if we are living generously. I'm going to share a quote because I really, really like C.S. Lewis, and I thought there had to be some C.S. Lewis in this series here. 
And he says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I love that he just leans into like the biggest question. Like how much should we give? He says, I don't know. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to, I love this, guys. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Guys, this is different than the way the world lives. The world tells us that no matter what your income level, there are comforts and there are pleasures that you can buy. Whether you're making minimum wage inventory or whether you're pulling in six figures, there are ways you can blow money on dumb stuff. There are ways you can blow money on stuff that makes you happy or comfortable, that makes you feel like you can keep up with your next door neighbors or keep up with your friends. And both C.S. Lewis and Jesus remind us that that is not the way a Christian lives. Generosity is one of those uncomfortable realities of following Jesus. It's the one, like, we don't like to talk about money, so it's the one that, like, just suddenly your back straighten a little bit when we start talking about money. We start talking about generosity, you start thinking about your credit card statements, your bank statements, you're like, man, what am I spending money on? And, and you instantly go into like guilt mode, and that is not what we are about, and that is not what we're doing. But what we do see in Scripture is that life in the kingdom demands more than we ever thought. Life in the kingdom demands such a radical worldview that we would not look to pleasing ourselves first or only but we would look to see how can we participate with God in his advancement of the kingdom, even if that costs me. Even if there's something, like C.S. Lewis says, I want to do that I cannot do, I know I am part of a bigger story here. Most of us don't live with a lot of financial margin, I will venture to say. A lot of us are, are younger in the room, which statistically means you are earlier in your career, which means you are not making as much money as the older folks in the room. That is like just the reality of the way the workforce works here in America. But as you guys know, at any financial level, life can be generally comfortable. We can find ways to make ourselves comfortable. And the crazy thing about our world is there are luxuries for every income level. Like I, hear me on this, because I'm going to be victim of this this year. I, again, I, I anticipate. But every year, there's a new iPhone that comes out, right? And no matter how much you or I make, you're probably going to find a way to get that new iPhone, right? And the cell phone companies are going to find a way to make it easier to hook you in with like monthly payments. And they hook me in, absolutely too. So I'm not pointing the finger at you guys. I'm just saying like no matter what you make, there are luxuries available to us that would be unthinkable in 90% of the world. And this is the reality of living in Southern California. And so this is why we receive what Paul says in 1 Timothy a little bit differently than those hearing it when Paul was writing it, or when he was actually circulating this letter to the churches. So he writes to Timothy, which was like his apprentice, church planner, apostle, going around planting churches. We think he was pastoring the churches in Ephesus at this time. And he writes from them at the very beginning of the end of his first letter, as for the rich in this present age, which for Paul might have actually been a subset of people. There might have been a tier in the church who were rich and those who weren't. 
the reality for us is we are all rich in this present age. So like, I, I don't care how much you make, globally, you're rich. We're rich. We are a rich church. That's the way it is. We just kind of have to settle that reality. Can we just get on board with the fact that globally, global perspective, we are rich people? Okay, cool. So let's receive what Paul has to say. As for the rich in this present age, which is you and I, whether you're working part-time as a barista or full-time somewhere else, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, love his play on words, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasures as good as a foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that of which is truly life. Generosity at its core is choosing to invest the resources that God has given you and I in his kingdom to help us advance and bring to light the compassionate heart of God to real people. We give and give generously solely for the benefit of someone else and furthering God's name. This is why we can unabashedly call you to budget, save, plan, and give really big because we're not recipients of that. We get to relish the fact that we get to give away a lot of money. And we can say that without feeling like creepy inside because we know it's going to plant more churches, to help church planters in Nepal, to rescue kids out of sex slavery in Thailand, to help local initiatives here in Ventura County. And we get to on a smile our face say, give and give big because there's no ulterior motives here. It is a joy to see money flying out our doors and to be funding kingdom initiatives both here and around the world. And But what we have found, and even though it is a joy, celebrating generosity is a discipline, because there will always be reasons and excuses not to give. And I hear this all the time, and and I feel... Hear me on this. I'm not like wagging a finger at you guys, but I feel like I've been in a lot of conversations with a lot of you guys, uh, especially as you're like moving careers, switching jobs, just starting out, coming out of school. Uh, I, did, I did some work with Josh in, in college ministry for a long time, and we talked to a lot of people graduating college and moving on, and, and, and there are very real financial limitations if you're in your, your young 20s, for sure. But I will tell you, I've heard every excuse in the book not to be generous, And I'm not just talking about like giving you, giving money to the church, but just a a generous posture in lifestyle, whether it be the things you're gifted with that God has, has gifted you and your abilities, whether it's your time, whether it is your actual money, both to help support the church or other initiatives. I've heard every reason in the book why one could not or would not be generous with their life. And it is a discipline. And one of the things that Kev always tells people who are struggling to find kind of that first step in giving, he says, start anywhere. Find a way to give a dollar away. Just release that hold that money has on your life. Jesus reminds us that the, that the, the root of all evil is the love of money. That money in itself is not dangerous, but the love of it can be so dangerous for us. And so celebrating generosity is a discipline. It's something we have to work at. It's a muscle we have to flex. And so we do that sort of behind the scenes. A lot of you guys may not even know we give away 10% of everything that comes in regularly, but it's something we do in a really big flashy way. It celebrates generosity. And it's something we invite you into. 
whether like giving away that $20 will legitimately hurt you or you have the ability to write that big check. We want you guys to see the fruit of releasing money and see the fruit in your life of letting money unclasp itself from your heart. It is a discipline. We're choosing to find joy in giving rather than receiving. And you are invited to join us in that. You're invited to join us in the joy of that, and joy of celebrating that together. And so over this week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to take some time to dig into the actual things we get to give to and how that exposes some of the heart of God. And so today will be less about sharing the, the vision and plans for, for specific ministries that we'll be pouring into necessarily. That'll make its way into our time, but we wanted to first start with just some of God's posture and his heart. And particularly tonight, with his heart for the nations. And this is something we, we, get to, we get to give money away in places of the world that you and I will probably never go to. We'll never see exactly how it's spent. We'll never see the direct impact of our gift. But we have a unique opportunity, especially tonight, but also in the future, to hear stories of what God is doing. To see how, how the Lord extends our meager funds for incredible purposes. And God has a heart for the nations. From the very beginning, God has a heart for the nations. In Genesis 1, God calls us to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that he'll be a blessing to all the nations. And we see throughout the Old Testament that Israel's role and posture and responsibility were to be priests for the whole entire world, to to be this living, walking signpost of who God is and to direct people back to him. Now, they failed miserably quite a lot, but that was their mandate, to go out and be priests to the nations, that, that the nations would know who God is. God saved for himself a people in the Old Testament, but not for their own sake, so that they would live on mission to the world. That as they lived differently, as they treated women differently, as they treated children or slaves or aliens differently, as they set up their country differently, the world would see that they worship a different kind of God. And that story continues on with Jesus. And when he goes to the cross, he goes for all people, When he rises from the dead and commissions his disciples to go, he commands them to go to all nations, making disciples, teaching them, baptizing them. When he ascends to heaven and empowers them to go forth, he empowers them to go not only to their their immediate region in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And we see throughout the story of Scripture that God has a heart for the nations. And while he is calling people to himself, He always has an eye towards those who are far from him, those who don't know him, those in in hard-to-reach places, those who don't have access to the things we have access to. And throughout the story of the Bible, God is calling his people to go out. And for those who don't go out, it's calling them to send others out. We had an amazing opportunity to do this a little while ago with Scott and Alexis. Do you guys remember that? Where we got to enjoy them, get to know them, get to know their family for a while, and then tearfully and joyfully send them out. You and I are not the ones going to a third world nation, but we get to joyfully send others out into that work. That is part of generosity. That is part of this global story. That is part of God's heart for the nations. It's not only that you and I would be willing to go where God calls us. And for right now, for a lot of you guys, it's here in Ventura. 
but that we would also be ready to send others to their God-given adventure. God clearly has the entirety of humanity in his mind when he sent Jesus to the cross and when Jesus commissioned those disciples. But we live in an interesting time as the world is getting smaller and we actually have greater access to different countries than we might have had in the previous years, decades, or even centuries. We have opportunities today to make a significant impact for the gospel going to the nations. And we are flexing those muscles as a church in two particular ways. But before we get to those two ways, I want to look at the story of one church in the Bible that was also flexing this muscle. I want to take our lead from a church that was walking this out. And that's the church in Corinth. So would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, we're going to start there and then hop around Paul's two letters to this church a little bit. But I want to take our lead from Paul's instructions and encouragements to a particularly generous church in the Bible and seeing how that generosity from one church or in one region impacts a lot of the world. And so in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Okay, so what Paul is doing here is he's encouraging people to plan for generosity. He gets very, very specific. On the first day of the week, put something away so that when I come, there's no collection. You'll just have it ready to go. He's encouraging them to plan for generosity, to literally schedule it out. This is like one of the more pragmatic things in the Bible that Paul would schedule or tell them to schedule this out. Plan for generosity, especially towards one another and the saints around the world. Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1 through 4 again. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay, so... This is a little bit different than 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, Paul is telling them, plan for this generosity, plan to give. So when I come to town, you guys are ready to unleash this generosity. In his second letter, in chapter 8, what he's doing is he's telling the story of another church in Macedonia. Right? He highlights how this poor church in Macedonia gave above what they were able to to help provide relief for the saints. They begged to be able to give and help even though it came at great cost to them. And so, just as like a sidelight here, I think if any of any of the stories uh, in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, I feel like we can identify with this one. Like at a practical level, on a monthly basis, we're not supporting ourselves yet. We're getting there. You guys are doing a phenomenal job, but we are still dependent on the support of Anthem, Camarillo, and Thousand Oaks. That doesn't mean we can't be crazy generous, even if it costs us. I lo- like if Paul were around today, I wish he would write this story about us. That even though we could not even provide for ourselves, we are so concerned with the saints around the world that we're giving lavishly. 
This is like dream passage for us as a church. All right, let's skip ahead to verse 13. 13 through 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. This is really important. But that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Okay, we are a body and we have something to offer one another generously. Whether it's finances, encouragement, testimonies of people coming to know Jesus, gifts and abilities and how we're wired. The point is that we operate from a place of giving, not receiving. And what we see Paul starting to do here is we start to see him as not only as a missionary, but as this this gospel money launderer. Hang with me. Like we see one of Paul's primary jobs is to shift money around as needed. To say, oh man, you guys are doing really well here in Corinth. Let's direct some of that money because there's a famine in Jerusalem. And there was a church in Macedonia who even they had need and they had lack and they still gave and God was providing for them. We start to see a global picture of the church that is not just about us and the money we need to keep the lights on per se. But to say, man, what is God doing in Thailand? Man, it costs 50, 60 bucks a month to support these pastors who are trudging around the mountains like We can do that. Like, let's do that. How many of those guys can we find? It takes how much to start up one of these orphanages to teach kids, to to read, to learn, to provide some education? We can definitely invest in that. We start to see this picture of Paul who's just shifting money around for the benefit of other churches. All right, let's skip ahead to chapter 9, verse 12. Verse 12 through 15. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for all of them and for others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Okay, that was like a really complicated sentence, and you may have gotten lost in there. And what Paul is saying is that generosity is rooted in our confession of and submission to Jesus. That's our starting place. We confess Jesus is Lord, we submit our lives to him, and then suddenly everything in our lives is his. And that's generosity flows from that. You cannot be truly generous the way Paul talks about it, the way Jesus hopes for and God wires us for unless we are submitted to and confessing Jesus as Lord. Once we do, the Holy Spirit changes us. Our heart posture is so different. The things we care about begin to change. And as much as we like to think it changes overnight, it usually happens over time. And we grow in this. That's why we make this a habit of ours as a church. Because we know you guys are all in different spots in your relationship with Jesus. Some of you guys have been walking with the Lord a really long time. Some of you guys, this is really new. We're overjoyed. We have such a diversity of stories in this room. But we know that also means a diversity of understanding of what it means to be generous. But no, at the very root, generosity is rooted in our confession of and submission to Jesus. I'm sharing these passages from the Corinthian church with you to help give a picture of generosity in the Bible. And I want you to be aware of the unique set of circumstances from the Bible around 
this particular church and even others. To see that as God was building his church in the New Testament, he was building them to be a generous church, a generous people, looking out for the welfare of other people. God's people are a generous people, and not just those in their immediate proximity, but to those around the world. God wants us to have a global perspective and a global heart that we would actually care about someone 5,000 miles across the world if they're eating or not, if they have access to the gospel or not, if they have access to education or not. God wants us to care about those things. In whatever way we can meagerly scrounge up support, we're going to do it to bless them. This is, uh, as I was doing a little bit of, of reading and research and talking with the other guys, we came across this really old blog post from our dear friend and, and uh, used to be a pastor here with Anthem, uh, Preston Sprinkle. And he wrote a, a few years back that the Apostle Paul spent more time in his letters talking about the redistribution of wealth within the global body than he did justification by faith which are like some fancy theological terms. What basically is saying is that Paul in his letters to churches talked more about churches providing for other churches and caring for the poor and needy than he did about basic tenets of our confession. This means it's probably a big deal to Paul. This means it's probably a huge deal to Paul. And he goes on to say, I'm just going to read at length because I think it's so good. And Preston says it all starts in Acts 11, where a prophet named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. So particularly that's Acts 11, verse 28, if you want to go check that out later. In response to the famine, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This is what's known as like the collection of the saints or the Jerusalem fund. There you go. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The relief was a financial gift collected from various churches in Greece and Asia Minor and sent to the impoverished churches in Jerusalem. This gift has been called the Jerusalem Collection. And about this collection, Paul has much to say. Sometime between Acts 12 and Acts 15, Paul meets with Peter, James, and John, which are the leaders of the Jerusalem church to talk about Paul's future ministry to the Gentiles. And at the end of the day, the one thing these leaders told Paul was remember the poor in Jerusalem, which Paul was very eager to do, Galatians 2 tells us. And by remember, Paul didn't mean like cognitive recollection. Rather, Paul set out on a mission to bring financial relief to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So in late autumn of AD 49, Paul embarked on his second missionary journey, which would have been Acts 15, uh, kind of the end of 15 to the beginning of Acts 21, which was largely aimed at collecting money from wealthier Gentile churches in Asia Minor and Greece to give to the poor believers in Jerusalem. So we talk about Paul's missionary journeys, or we talk about Paul as an apostle or a church planter, but he was, one of his primary functions was a money mover. There were poor Christians in this part of the world, and so he was going, as he was starting churches and strengthening churches, he was collecting money from wealthy churches to help poor churches. And I love this for a few reasons, but the main reason I love what Paul is doing here is he sees the growing, multiplying, globally expanding body of Christ as an opportunity to continue to express God's faithful, generous hearts. 
Paul says, your abundance can supply their need, and their abundance can supply your need. Guys, we live, I'm here, Anthem Ventura, we live in a really interesting spot where we, act, we have actual need. Like as a church, as a new church, we have legitimate need. As we grow into self-sustainability, we're dependent on the abundance of other churches. But in a global context, we have abundance, right? Personally, but also together as a collection of believers, as this church here in Ventura, we have abundance and we can supply for their need. We live in this beautiful, sweet middle spot where we can just see money coming in and money coming out. Where yes, we are praying and we are challenging you guys to give so that we can be self-sustainable and healthy and mature as a church. But even in our need, we have abundance in a global context that we can give and we can support other believers around the world. And Paul seems genuinely excited about the opportunity to call on the body of Christ worldwide to help out those in need. And this right here is at the very heart of our global initiatives, that we are uniquely postured to bring relief in two unique areas. And one, the first one I'm going to talk about here, uh, but the second I'm going to actually have Ryan talk about. And the first one, some of you guys may have heard uh, of this before, is Zoe International. And Zoe International was started by a couple, Mike and Carol Hart, who are former uh, Valley residents who worked in the entertainment industry. They heard about the issues of human trafficking, I'm sure as you have at some point in your life, in Southeast Asia and decided to devote their creative capacity and leadership gifts to tackling this problem head on. So they moved to Thailand nearly 20 years ago and began a journey of building a ministry that rescues kids out of sex slavery and teaches them the gospel, life skills, human dignity, and then sends them out into the world as rescued and restored people. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And while I have not been to Thailand, I've got to talk with them. I've got to talk to some of their people on the ground here in L.A., been to some of their fundraisers, and it's like heart-wrenching the problem of human trafficking. But it is so joyful to see these guys making gospel headway in this dark part of the world. And so the resources that we have been able to give over the last five years, we've been supporting them for something like five years, have gone to build a boys' home in Thailand, a safe house in Thailand, and to buy some property in L.A. as they start this initiative to rescue people out of sex slavery and human trafficking in L.A., And that impact that Zoe is making on the sex trade in Southeast Asia and L.A. is substantial. Not only are they rescuing kids directly and bringing them into their home. I mean, like, talk about, like, guys in in camo and dark, like, barging into super shady buildings, literally grabbing kids out and rescuing them. It's wild. Not only are they doing that and they're bringing them into their home, but they're making inroads with the government. They're earning seats on task force and building international relationships that are helping to bring an end to human trafficking in that corner of the world. There's a long way still to go, but we see them as like a bright spot in Thailand. And we've seen them as worthy as investing our our resources into. And they're doing incredible things there. We have built a relationship with a gospel-centered team of people at the tip of the spear in Thailand and in L.A., and that is one of those initiatives that we're giving to this year. And so part of, our, part of our Celebrate Generosity, we devote a third of that to our global initiatives, which are Zoe International. Literally, the, the money we give has direct impact on kids and women here in L.A., but also in Thailand. 
And the other part of our global initiative is Touch Nepal. Now, Ryan's going to come up here and share a little bit about Touch Nepal. But if you guys were here a few weeks ago, you met Babu. Come on up here, Ryan. You guys met Babu. Do you guys remember that if you were here? Uh, He is one of our church planters in Nepal, and he came and shared some stories with you guys. Uh, But I wanted to bring Ryan up because Ryan just got back from Nepal. I did. Like, uh, how long ago? Last Thursday. So, well, like 10 days ago. Are you adjusted to California time yet? Very much so. Well, Ryan was just in Nepal, and so we wanted to like take this opportunity to hear and see some of the stuff that he got to hear and see, so I'll let him take it away. Thanks, Bert. Hi, everybody. Hi. Woo. Uh, so yeah, like Bert said, I'm from Anthem Thousand Oaks. I'm one of the elders there, if you guys haven't met me. Um, Matt Larson, who's the lead pastor there, and me, and Kevin, who's the lead pastor at our church in Camarillo really started uh, the church about eight years ago uh, in a couple weeks, and it's been really fun. A lot of the time it's been really hard other times, but I'm glad that we are here. So, um, Bert was talking earlier about how most of us won't ever get the opportunity to see firsthand the things that we support uh, internationally, but I was able to actually go and see some of those things that we support internationally, and so I'm Glad I get the, the opportunity to come and like share some of that stuff with you guys. So um, the first things first, I had no idea how beautiful Nepal is. Um, if you've never been there, I, the only pictures that I've ever seen of Nepal are of like dirty, dusty Kathmandu. And then there's this one scene in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where he flies to Nepal. Um, and it looks like this. And that was like the picture I had of what Nepal was going to be. I figured that I was going to be able to see Mount Everest every single place that I went to. I thought there was going to be Sherpas all over the place. And that was not the case. Um, it was it was gorgeous there it was like lush forests and rainforesty looking things and jungles and all all different kinds of places it was incredible uh so i was actually on the ground for about 10 days there and i was able to actually visit all of the things that we really support um there's churches that church buildings that we've helped to build that i didn't get to see but i got to see the guy who really championed all those sorts of things so i'm going to take you through the three guys that we really support uh, primarily, and then there's one other guy at the end that I want to talk about, and that's kind of like the flow of where I'm going to be headed. So uh, when Babu was out here a couple weeks ago, I was actually sleeping at his house legitimately when he was talking here at Ventura. They are 12 and a half, no, 12 hours and 45 minutes ahead uh, of our time here, and so the timing was a little bit interesting. But uh, the first thing I did was I got to visit with Sabitri, who is Babu's wife. She is amazing, uh, and the work that, that she and Babu do is incredible. So they've had a upwards of 60 kids that live in what the government calls their orphanage, but really it's just their house that they have built to accommodate all these different kids because I don't know if Babu explained it when he was here, but when a kid is, is orphaned and comes to an orphanage, uh, there's basically zero chance that they're ever going to be adopted. And so really what Babu and Sabitri know is that every kid that comes into their, into their home is going to be one of their kids for the rest of their lives. 
So they've had up to 60 kids at their house at a time. Uh, right now, they're in like the, the high 30s, just because kids have grown up and they've been able to sustain themselves, and so they've moved out. Uh, but right now, they're in, in the 30s or so at the house. Um, I don't have this in my notes, but I actually took pictures of every single one of the kids that was there, because uh, none of them have ever had like a physical picture of themselves. So I'm excited to actually be able to, to send those back to them. It'll be really fun. Uh, but in addition to having 60 kids, uh, which feels crazy, Bert and Sherry have three, and that probably feels like a lot. Um, you guys have six kids or something? Yeah. Ten times that amount of kids. Can't believe that. Um, so one of the stories that, that I really wanted to share about specifically the Blessed Children's Home, which is what they call their spot, is uh, about two weeks before Babu came out here, they were presented uh, with an interesting situation from the Nepali government. They said that there was five sisters um, that they were trying to find a spot for. And the reason that they were in an orphanage, this is them right there, um, the reason that they were in an orphanage was because their mom had died and dad couldn't handle the idea of raising five kids by himself, and so he just left. Just left in the middle of the night, never said goodbye, never nothing. Just left five little girls to fend for themselves. And so um, the 11-year-old is incredible and decided, uh, once she realized that dad wasn't coming back, that she needed to take on the role of mom and dad. And so what she did was she... uh, had some water bottles uh, because you can't really drink the tap water out there. So every bit of water that you drink is from a water bottle. And so she took those water bottles and went to a bus stop and started selling them for five cents more uh, than she was buying them for. And with that, they were able to scrounge for about a year and she was able to feed herself and all four of her sisters. And the youngest one at the time, what had just had her birthday. So she was just one. Uh, And so she was, like, taking care of all of this stuff. Can you imagine? And so um, the reason that the government picked them up was because they were at a bus stop, and she was so adamant about selling these water bottles that the bus drivers were starting to say that she was a nuisance uh, to everybody around there. And so... um, and so they picked him up and drove him around to all these different orphanages all around Nepal, and nobody would take all five of them uh, until they came to uh, Babu and Subitri, and they serve a different kind of God and are a different kind of people, and they said, yes and amen, we absolutely will take all five of them. So this picture is about six weeks after they got there, um, and it's incredible. I mean, they now have, like, all of these brothers and sisters. They have a mom and a dad. They actually have a few people that are on, like, a paid staff to really care for them and things like that. Um, but their their life is incredibly different now and will continue to be uh, because they're starting to hear about Jesus. Uh, it's incredible. So uh, the little girl in the yellow, uh, she was the one who wanted to play with me more than any of the kids. And I felt so... Uh, out of my element because she would come up to me and she had this like little squeaky voice and would like talk to me in Nepali and I had no idea what she was saying the whole time and there weren't like toys or anything that I could like throw a ball to her. I have two little boys and so I'm like used to playing with boys. I I don't do the whole like girl play thing. Um, But I couldn't figure out how to play with her and so she would like talk to me about all this stuff and then wait for me to say something and then she would just kind of walk away disappointed but Maybe next time I can figure out how to, how to play with her better next time. So um, in addition to all of these things, in addition to that, that Babu does, he also is the pastor of a church. 
He also functions in an apostolic role with dozens of pastors throughout the Terai region, which is the, the southern part of India, India, Nepal. Um, and then he also runs a Bible school. So that was actually the reason that Steve Larson went out there with me, uh, was to teach at this Bible school. And so the school is a few miles away from where they live, um, but their, their whole idea is to raise up the next generation of leaders for Nepal. So they have guys that are there, they have girls that are there, and one of the primary ways that, that we as Anthem Church can invest in what Babu is doing is by helping to build a permanent structure there at the Bible school for girls to be able to actually stay on site and learn more about the Bible, learn more about what it looks like to be leaders, looks, find out more of what it looks like to be, honestly, a mom in that context that's able to, to disciple the kids uh, that are part of their family. Um, since we've been back, we've been talking about like what are the key uh, things to the growth of the gospel in Nepal. And Steve and I and Mark all kind of feel like uh, it's, could you go to the other picture of the girls that were there? Back the other way. Uh, we think it's, we th- uh, the other one, sorry, you just passed it. We think it's the women of Nepal is like really going to be the thing that is going to be an incredible force for Nepal. They're the ones who are on their knees praying. The churches that we went to, there was usually like three times as many women as there were men. Alcoholism is a crazy problem in Nepal. Um, and so it's it just seemed like it was the women who were the ones who were super, super faithful. And so if you're going to be praying for anybody in Nepal, pray for every woman who is in Nepal and is a Christian because they are really going to be, I think, the, the key. And so we want to be able to invest into that and support what they're doing at the Bible school for the women. Uh, the next guy uh, that I want to talk about is a guy named Bicky. And if there's one thing you should know about Bicky is that he loves Kentucky Fried Chicken. That is a picture of him right when we walked into KFC. I've never seen somebody so excited about anything. Um, so Bicky, aside from loving KFC, is an amazing leader also. He's in a different part of Nepal. You can kind of split Nepal. It's about the size of California with a huge mountain range that runs right in the middle. And so the lower part is called the Terai, and the upper part is really the Kathmandu and the Kathmandu Valley. And so he primarily is in the Kathmandu Valley. And just like Babu, he uh, goes to all of these different places and functions in an apostolic way. So he was the pastor of a church. He just handed that off to somebody else so that he can invest more into the different relationships that he has all around the country. Um, And then he also runs a training center that is uh, connected to the church where all of these people from across Nepal have come, received training, and have been sent out to plant churches in all of Nepal. So I did about an hour and a half of teaching on why, how important it is to uh, be accountable with how our churches spend money and how we track money and all those sort of things, because that's kind of what I do for the church. Um, And so as an introduction to myself, I was sharing some of the story of Anthem and saying some of the things that we feel like we do a good job with. And one of those things was church planting, because honestly, from a United States perspective, like we're working on helping to start our ninth church right now in eight years of being a church, which sounds awesome until you see that. <laughs> I felt so silly that I was like hyping myself up and I look over at the sign. I'm like, oh, shoot. Yeah, they, they do this a lot better than we do. So, so they've got pastors all over. And honestly, Bicky rides his motorcycle just out to see these guys all of the time. 
And so uh, one of the ways that we can continue to support Bicky this year um, is uh, one of the trips that he was taking out on his motorcycle. He was basically run off the road. His motorcycle broke. Uh, and so he can't get to a lot of these guys because the roads that you take to get to them, you can't take a car on. So we're hoping to help him buy a dirt bike, uh, which is going to be even better than the motorcycle that he had before. Um, and then uh, also we just support his family expenses and stuff like that so that he can continue to, to minister to all of these different churches all around the country. So that's Bicky. Um, we had a chance to go to a village called Dotting uh, when we were out there. And this is led by uh, one of the guys that they raised up at the, the training center. And it was incredible to be at the same place as these people in a, in a room that was honestly 120 degrees, something, it was so hot. Steve was like pouring sweat when he was teaching. Um, you can't really see the sweat, but I promise it's there. Um, it was very, very hot in that room. I touched the, the side and I, I burned my hand. Um, and so everybody there knows, do not touch the walls. They did not teach me that lesson. So, um, so yeah, you can see what I was talking about earlier. There, are, it, You kind of have to like go through and point to all of them, but there are so many more women on the left side than there are on the right side. It's about a three-to-one ratio in this church. And so um, this church was started, like I said, about two years ago by one of the guys that was trained by Bicky. And this is a classic example of what he does. It just goes to all these different places, visits their churches, does training, things like that. Um, and one of my favorite parts was doing worship with them. They had uh, one kid in the front. I have a video that'll show in a second. It's like 10 seconds long. Do we have the audio on that? Well, you can imagine it sounds really good. Um, so it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was 110, 120 degrees in the room. Everybody's sweaty. Uh, they're sitting on the floor. They've been there for six hours at that point. Um, and there it is. So it, that's like a short clip. They worshiped for so long, and it was so awesome just to see how much passion and joy and generosity they had, like more than I've seen in like most churches uh, in the States, and they have so little, but they're so generous with everything that they have. So, so that was really, really encouraging, um, and so that's what we're hoping to continue to support through Bicky. Uh, the third guy that I wanted to talk about is a guy named Beekish, who loves having pictures taken of himself. Uh, next picture. There he is. Okay, cool. So that's, that's Beekish. Um, so about 10 years ago, Bicky, the last guy I was talking about that loves KFC, uh, took a group of guys, uh, from Touch Nepal through a place called the Coconut Leper Colony. Uh, who knows that leprosy still exists in the world? Yeah, it does. So it's, it's much, much smaller of a problem than it ever was before. The World Health Organization will give anybody free medication, but a lot of people just have no idea about it because they live in remote villages. And so uh, the government has, has created this place called the Coconut Leper Colony where if somebody uh, has leprosy and they've been banished by their village or their community, they say you can uh, go live in this place. So there's about 200 people 
that have been cured of the bacteria that causes the effects of leprosy, uh, but forever, because of the caste system, they will be known as lepers, regardless of whether or not they carry the bacteria or not. And even beyond that, their kids in every generation after them will also be considered lepers. And so Beekish has never had leprosy. This are his parents. Um, both of them had leprosy, have been cured of leprosy, um, but still have some of the physical effects. Uh, so Beekish and his sister are considered lepers, uh, but have never once had a single uh, piece of bacteria that is going to cause leprosy in them. Um, I totally went off of my notes, so I'm sorry. I had pictures all lined up all the way through there. Um, but basically, Mark and the team met Beekish when he was 15, standing on the roof of one of the buildings in, in the coconut leper colony, um, and just saw that he had a passion for Jesus, which was really irregular that a kid knows about Jesus in a place like that. The reason is because when Beekish's parents heard about uh, this hospital that they could go and get healed at, Neither of them knew each other. One was from northern uh, Nepal. The other one was from southern Nepal. At the same time, they, they had a dream that said that there's this, this hospital that's in Kathmandu uh, where you can go and get healed of your leprosy. And so uh, you can't see it in this picture, but he, he walks kind of like on his ankles um, and has crutches. Uh, but for, for whatever reason, he said, I feel like I'm supposed to go to this hospital. And so he kind of like crawled his way for four days to get to this hospital, got there, and they had the intention that they were going to leave there cured of their leprosy, but what they didn't know was that this was a Presbyterian hospital, uh, and so they also preached Jesus to them, and so both of them left the hospital not only cured of leprosy, uh, but they, they got saved, they came to know Jesus, and they also met each other at that same hospital, and so uh, it's like this crazy story. They have to make a movie about it. Ricky, get on it. Um, <laughs> And so uh, it, it's just this like really neat thing. And so Bikish is one of the few people who's in his 20s that has never been Hindu, never been Buddhist. Uh, Christianity is like such a new thing in, in, uh, in Nepal that he is like this gem that nobody, uh, nobody has his story. So, uh, so Bikish is really, really awesome. And one of the, the things that his parents have done is they've been the advocates for people who are affected by leprosy with the government. And so they're the ones who are knocking down the doors of people at the government buildings and saying, hey, you need to continue to, to remember that you sent all of us here. And so the people who live there are in a much different situation than they were, be, uh, mostly because of the work that his parents have done. Uh, there's about 1.5% of the population of Nepal that would identify as Christians. Um, in the coconut leper colony, that number is about 40% which is wild. And most of that is because of the work of Bikish's parents, of Bikish, his sister, and obviously the work of the Holy Spirit. So obviously they're very, very effective in what they do. One of the other things that they do is they host uh, something called the Rays of Hope Tutoring Center. Um, and what they do there is they take kids who are only able to go to school at a place called the Garment School. And the garment industry is a pretty, is a pretty big thing in uh, the greater Kathmandu Valley. And these garment schools are run by the garment manufacturers. And what their, their sole purpose is, is raising up kids, giving them enough education so that they can be productive uh, factory workers in their factories later. So you, they need to know like five 
things of yarn, they need to use two, okay, so we need to cut out three. You know, like things like that, very, very basic rudimentary things. And so what Bikish and two other tutors do is they take these kids after school and they basically raise their really poor education, give them a quality education so that when they are about, in our, in our context, graduating high school age, they're able to rise above the level that the, the caste system says that they're allowed to be in. And so they can go to college, they can, they can move out of the leper colony, all things like that. So they have about 50 kids they give, they give shoes to, they give backpacks to, they give education to, and, and they tell them about Jesus, honestly. And uh, there's about 50 kids that are in the same situation as Bikish, where they've never had leprosy, will never have leprosy, but the people of Nepal see them as lepers just because their parents had half of their thumb fall off or something like that. So um, it's an incredible opportunity to see like so much fruit for generations and generations uh, with that. Um, yeah, so those are the three guys that Touch Nepal has, has really supported over the last few years. Uh, th there was one guy that I met out there named Satya, uh, who I think, uh, needs to be the fourth person of that group. Uh, and I've been talking to Mark, who, who runs Touch Nepal, about this. And, and we've agreed that we're not quite ready to say, like, we're going to do this, this, and this for him. Uh, but we know that we want to do something. So uh, Steve Larson, who is Matt Larson's dad. Matt Larson is the lead pastor of Anthem Thousand Oaks. Uh, Steve is one of like the best Bible scholars and Bible teachers that any anybody who knows him knows that he is like very uniquely gifted to do those sort of things. And Satya, on a three-hour drive from Kathmandu to Dading, that church that we that I showed pictures of, was taking Steve to school the entire time on the Bible. And uh, I texted uh, Mark Avery when all that was happening, and I said, I don't know how else to say it, but Satya is a heavyweight. There's just, he has like a very high calling from God, and you can just tell. So he is very academic when it comes to scripture, but he also loves people and loves the church like crazy. And so he has been asked to retranslate the Nepali Bible because the one that they use is not very good. Um, and so they know that he would be able to give like a much better copy of the Bible for everybody than currently exists. And he also is a master trainer of leaders. And so he's developed all these curriculums. Uh, he's translating all these different books from English uh, to Nepali. Like there's this book called Shepherding a Child's Heart that he just finished. And his intention is to just resource all of those, those uh, leaders that are all over the country. He basically doesn't want to be the guy to go out there. He wants to be the one who puts together the resources to give to Bicky and say, hey, go take this. And so I have like a huge interest in seeing him be freed up to have more time to do that. So we're not exactly sure what that's going to look like, but I think that, that God has big things in store uh, for Nepal through Satya. So uh, I hope that helps give like a, a picture to what we're, what we're trying to support in Nepal. Um, and I think that, that you guys have such a direct opportunity to invest in seeing literally thousands of people come to know Jesus. Uh, and so my ask is that you guys would give big. Give bigger than you think that you can. Uh, just because I know and I've seen like every one of those dollars is invested so, so well. Uh, and so I'm going to close uh, by the traditional Christian greeting. In, in Nepal, so everybody, you can do like the, the thing that normally is namaste, right? But you say, uh, in Nepali, this means praise the Messiah. You say, Jemasi. Jemasi. Well done.
Thanks, Ryan. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but that like amps me up. That's like, that's so, I think I, my, I think as I'm thinking about Zoe International and Touch Nepal, I'm like simultaneously heartbroken, just like the depravity of humanity, but also so encouraged uh, that we found people who are doing amazing, amazing work. Um, And so, I don't know, I just hope that spurs on your creativity. I'm with Ryan, give and give big, but also like, I think there are other ways that we can be involved. There are other ways we can make an impact here and in those parts of the world. And so if any of this like perks your interest, like let it percolate. Like just imagine with God what you can do when you partner with him in helping advance his kingdom. I'm really blown away by the opportunities we have to, to support these different things. Uh, and just as you and your family are praying about Celebrate Generosity and what you can give, I want these ministries to be at the forefront of your mind. I really do. Um, I want you to be thinking about uh, Babu and, and Bicky and Bikesh and, and what's his name, the fourth guy? Satya, and I want you guys to be thinking about the orphanage and the tutoring center and, and rescuing kids out of, out of human trafficking, sex slavery. Like, this is, we have a tangible impact in these areas. This is not a big insurmountable problem that is just like dropping pennies in a bucket. Like, we can tangibly shape lives in Thailand, LA, and Nepal. So please, please think and pray and ask the Lord to give you imagination for what could be. Um, and so I just, I want to close here. Um, I want to close, and I'm going to ask Josh and, and Luke and Anna to come up here and, and help us respond a little bit as we end the evening. Uh, but just as a, as a reality, um, we teach generosity as a gospel issue, as, as a foundational, fundamental. If your heart has been changed, you're changed towards the one who saved you, and the one who saved you is generous. And so that's why we teach it as a gospel issue. That's why we teach it as something that is fundamental to who we are. And these things happen to us over God's kind of long story with us to make us more like himself. And he wants good things for you. He is a father who likes to give good gifts to his kids, but often we can't see those good things because we are so preoccupied with other things. Augustine said, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. And so as we think and as we're just just dipping our toes in the water of, of Celebrate Generosity this year. I want the gospel to be something that expands our worldview, to allow us to be a little less preoccupied with the things that we normally are, so that we can see what God is trying to do with us and through us as a church. So as in terms of response, like yes, think, plan, pray, fundraise, save, organize your life, like Absolutely, we'll be calling you guys to do that quite a bit. But I think at just the beginning of this generosity, I wanted to just like tweak our heart just a little. Uh, And to do that, I wanted to go all the way back to Matthew chapter 6 as we close, uh, just to remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Because at a gut level, none of this happens unless our heart has been changed, right? And so Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If you guys have been with us for any amount of time, you might remember that our dear friend John Marshall preached this text uh, the weekend that all of our church stuff got stolen. And so it had like, it landed for us, and I think in a really unique way, and I hope it lands for you guys in a unique way. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, your heart is. 
I want our hearts to be where God's heart is. And so, yes, think, plan, pray, prepare to give really big, but also, honestly, in the few minutes we have left together, just dig around in your heart a little. With your community this week, dig around your heart a little. Um, Ask yourself, where's your heart? Where's your treasure? Are hands too full to receive what God has for us? Generosity is this beautiful discipline that God gives us to free ourselves from lust, from greed, from power, from idolization, from coveting. It's this act of of willfully and joyfully giving away the things that our world tells us makes us happy and powerful and comfortable. And like Lewis says, it should change our lives. We should be saying no to things because of our generosity. Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom, and he says it's better to give than to receive. And so I don't know about you guys. I want to trust him for that.